0: It is the top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. We are glad you're with us, and we do begin with breaking news. This overnight, a deadly train disaster in Greece. Two trains crashing into one another, killing more than 36 people. We have those latest developments.
1: For the first time in more than 30 years, Chicago's sitting mayor has lost re-election in a race that was dominated by rising crime. Is it a warning sign for other big city Democrats
2: and progressives? Lost this. You're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government controlled lab that killed millions of Americans.
3: That's the head of the FBI providing his first public confirmation on their assessment
0: about COVID originally leaking from a
3: Chinese lab. We'll have more on his comments ahead.
0: All of that ahead. But first, to our breaking news, a devastating train crash in Greece. It has killed more than 36 people. Dozens are injured. A passenger train carrying hundreds of people collided head on with a freight train Multiple cars derailed, several catching fire. This happened just north of Athens. State broadcasters are reporting that both trains were traveling on the same track for several miles before this collision. First responders still working, trying to find survivors in the twisted, melted wreckage. A hospital official says uh, most of the passengers were young people. For reporting on this and an update, let's go to Eleni Jokos. She joins us now with the latest on the tragedy. Eleni, it's terrible news. What do you know at this hour?
4: Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely horrific. Um, the, the passengers that survived this said that the impact was so intense that it felt like an earthquake. People were being thrown around in the carriages. Two, the first two carriages caught a light. There's nothing really left of those carriages. You have cranes and metal cutting machinery right now trying to work through the wreckage to see if there are more victims. We are hearing family members and parents of university students waiting outside the hospital to identify or at least figure out where their loved ones are. 346 people on that passenger train traveling up from Athens to Thessaloniki and then a cargo train on the same track. Then head on collision. So many questions around why weren't there any safety protocols that were activated? Um, they were traveling on the same track for several miles, as you say. Um, the national broadcaster also saying that there's just so many questions around the safety of the railway. 66 people are injured, seven of whom are currently in critical uh, condition. The Prime Minister, Kiriakos Mitsotakis, was just at the crash site saying that there will be no effort spared to figure out why this happened and to ensure that. This doesn't happen again. But this is absolutely tragic. And you're hearing sad and horrific stories of the victims at this point. Poppy.
0: Tragedy. Uh, that sounds like it could have been preventable. Eleni, thank you for the reporting yeah. very much. Don. We
1: take you to Chicago now where the mayor lost re-election in a resounding defeat that could have implications for big city Democrats. There is no question that crime was the big issue that dominated this race. And Lori Lightfoot came in third place, failing to advance to a runoff.
5: I'm grateful that we worked together to r- remove a record number of guns off our streets, reduce homicides, and started making real progress on public safety.
1: So here's what happened. Under Mayor Lightfoot's watch, violent crimes spiked in Chicago. It made national headlines and became a talking point for Republicans and former President Trump. Shootings and murders dropped last year, but other crimes, including carjackings and robberies, are up. That's according to police. So the candidate who won the most votes is a Democrat, a Democrat with a tough on crime platform and the endorsement of Chicago's police union. He received nearly double the number of votes that Lori Lightfoot did. Our Omar Jimenez live now in the Windy City for us this morning. My old stomping grounds, good morning to you. You know Omar, crime has become a top campaign issue in Chicago and other big cities.
6: It really has, and you know, midway through her administration, Mayor Lori Lori Lightfoot told me if people don't feel safe, literally nothing else matters, and I think this, in part, was the embodiment of that. She was the city's first black woman to be mayor, she was the city's first openly gay mayor, and now she is set to be the first full-term incumbent mayor in Chicago history to lose reelection in at least the last 40 years. Now, when you look at what she dealt with, she says we're on the other side of what she described as a once in a lifetime set of challenges from the peak of a pandemic to jumps in gun violence that we saw here and in other places, civil unrest and more. So let me ask you
1: a little bit more about this. Is there an early favorite uh, to take for Lightfoot heading, you know, not heading to this uh, runoff? The runoff is in April. Is it Paul Vallis or
6: who is it? Well, at this point, it's essentially a battle between the police union and the teachers union. Paul Vallis, a former head of schools in Chicago and Philadelphia, is backed by the police union, really ran on a tough public safety campaign. And Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner, former teacher, he's backed by the teachers' union. Take a listen to them both.
7: We will make Chicago the safest city in America. Yeah. Months ago,
8: they said they didn't know who I was. Yeah. Well, if you didn't know, now you know.
9: <laughs>
6: Johnson, obviously excited, but, you know, he really talked about how he wants to end the tale of two cities where one side of the city has resources and the other doesn't. Vallis also talked about wanting to be a mayor for all of Chicago. And those are both messages I think we are going to see play out in the lead up to this April 4th runoff election. And that happened because. No candidate this time, as expected, got 50 percent of the vote. And so now April 4th is when we decide on the new mayor of Chicago.
1: What's interesting, it looks like the conservative side of the Democratic Party and the progressive side kind of squeeze um, out Lori Lightfoot right there in the middle.
6: Yeah, I mean, it, it makes you wonder if the matchup for Lightfoot would have been more favorable if it was her against Vallis in the runoff. but. You know, it shakes out the way it does, and and we'll see what happens. Omar Jimenez, live in Chicago. Thank
1: you, Omar. appreciate it.
3: Also new this morning, the FBI Director Christopher Wray is now providing the first public confirmation that the Bureau does believe the pandemic was most likely caused by a lab leak.
2: You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists microbiologists etc who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats which include things like novel viruses like covid uh, and the concerns that, that in the wrong hands some bad guys a hostile nation-state a terrorist a criminal uh, the threats that those those could pose
3: CNN's Natasha Perjian joins us now. Natasha, it's notable to hear from him saying this publicly. We knew that the FBI had made this conclusion. Now uh, they are in the same camp as the Department of Energy with their updated assessment of this. It is notable to hear from him, though, to talk about not just what this means, what their assessment is, but also to point the finger at China, saying that they are the ones who are still blocking the United States and, and other nations from finding out truly what happened.
10: And that's the big problem here, Caitlin, is that the intelligence community, while different elements of the IC have different opinions about what happened here. Ultimately, what they do agree on, and this is according to a 2021 report released by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, is that China's cooperation in this investigation is going to be pretty essential to coming to a definitive conclusion about how the pandemic began. And multiple high-ranking U.S. officials have said that it appears that China has been thwarting efforts by the international community to do that to actually do a thorough investigation uh, into the origins of the pandemic. But it is notable that Chris Wray uh, kind of came out and said this because we have not heard from him directly on this subject uh, since the FBI, of course, did conclude, uh, according to our sources, with moderate confidence that the pandemic emerged from a lab leak. So hearing him say that and saying that the FBI has th- has thought for quite some time, uh, indicating that they have not actually changed their position over the last Nearly two years uh, is quite notable, especially as you said, after the Department of Energy concluded with low confidence that this emerged from a lab leak. But as many officials have said, it is probably, we're probably not going to get to the bottom of this definitively without some kind of smoking gun here, Caitlin.
3: Which is kind of mind blowing. And so we've got the Department of Energy and the FBI over here that say that they do believe it was a lab leak, despite, you know, that's not a high confidence assessment but we have other agencies that either have not made a determination or believe that it could have been passed on from an animal you know what does that divide say about you know the government as a whole and their approach to this if there is no smoking gun that they have
10: yeah, Caitlin, well, we should note that the the FBI's view and the Department of Energy's view is still a minority opinion within the intelligence community. Uh, the eight intel agencies that produced that first assessment back in 2021, plus the National Intelligence Council, the majority of them believe that this emerged naturally from, from an animal in the wild. Uh, and then you have the Department of Energy and the FBI who believe it was a lab leak, and then others are still undecided, right? They believe that both p- hypotheses are plausible, but there's just not enough evidence to, to figure it out uh, definitively. And so I think that the IC has pretty much concluded here that without more on the ground information, it is probably just going to be impossible to say moving forward uh, how this actually began, because there's only so much you can do from afar, right, analyzing the data uh, without that kind of on the ground investigation, Caitlin.
3: Yeah, and we know we'll hear from other officials when they testify in the next week or so. Natasha, thank you. And in our next half hour, we should note that John Avalon is going to take a closer look at the origins of the lab leak theory, how it was approached previously, the way people talk about it now, and what that looks like.
0: Upon further review, look forward to that. Meantime, this morning, the FAA is investigating a really close call, a near collision of two aircraft in Boston on Monday. This is. In the middle of a number of alarming close calls at U.S. airports, right? The agency says JetBlue, a flight by JetBlue, was coming into land when a private Lear 60 jet took off without clearance through an intersecting uh, tarmac there. Look at that. Air traffic controllers told the Lear jet to line up and wait as that JetBlue flight approached, and the Lear jet pilot even read those instructions back clearly, but for some reason began to take off instead. Flight trader says that the planes came within just 565 feet of one another. Luckily, there were no injuries, but this is the fifth close call at a U.S. airport this year. Other incidents took place here in New York, in Austin, Texas, Honolulu, Hawaii, and Burbank, California.
1: The bombshells just keep coming. The latest revelations from a lawsuit against Fox News and the stunning admissions from its owner, Rupert Murdoch. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
11: The former president took to his fake social media side to ask, why is Rupert Murdoch throwing his anchors under the table? (laughs) Okay, that's not an expression. (laughs) But you know what they say, the squeaky wheel gets the hose again and (laughs) nobody puts baby in a blender.
1: Listen, obviously fodder for late night, but this is deadly serious. When you think about what happened with the insurrection, people dying, you think about what it means for our democracy, you think about what it means for the First Amendment, you think about what it means for jobs that are protected under the First Amendment, the freedom of the press, not red or blue, it's green. That's from Rupert Murdoch's bombshell deposition before lawyers for Dominion Voting Systems, a billionaire owner of Fox News, making it very clear money was a factor in letting false claims of election fraud populate his airwaves. Dominion is suing the network for defamation and is seeking $1.6 billion in damages. Lawyers for Fox have called the lawsuit, and I quote here, dubious. Let's discuss now former Baltimore Sun media critic and professor of communications and media studies at Goucher College. David Zerwick is here and CNN political commentator and uh, co-founder and editor-in-chief of The Dispatch, Jonah Goldberg-Jones, as well. Uh, Jonah, in a caveat here, you used to work at Fox. Uh, and should note that you have been subpoenaed and deposed by Dominion on this case, so you can't speak on your own deposition. Unless you want to, that's your choice, but I don't think (laughs) it would be a a smart move at this point. We appreciate both of you joining us. Um, As I said here, this is fodder, it may be for late night, but this is deadly serious, um, Jonah, when you think about what the election lies um, narrative led to January 6th an insurrection people going to jail deaths this is this is maybe one of the most consequential cases when it comes to the media and freedom of the press that at least in recent times
12: no i think that's probably right and we should have you know we should just as a as a matter of due diligence keep a grain of salt that we've really only heard the blistering case from Dominion which i think is very powerful and very persuasive and jibes with my experience in many ways but we don't know all the facts of what Fox's response is going to be to this, so who knows? And we should also note that all media companies that aren't nonprofit are in the profit-making business. Mm-hmm. Um, the difference here is that if you read these these documents, what comes across blisteringly clear is that Fox management thought that the competing the, the competing issues here had nothing really to do with serious journalism and telling the truth. They had to do with uh, holding on to an audience, even as, and, and even if that cost them their integrity and their reputation for as as telling the truth to their own audience, because they created kind of a monster with their own audience that they were then terrified of.
0: You know, David, I'm really struck by the fact um, that what Rupert Murdoch said in the deposition when he was deposed: "It's not blue, it's not red, it's green." He was talking about why they kept allowing Mike Lindell to come on and spew these lies, remains true because they still make a lot of money and they still have good ratings. So does any of this change Fox?
9: You know, you would hope uh, that it would, Poppy, but if you look across the history of Fox, and this is interesting because people talk about losing, uh, will, is it, will it ever be known as a news channel again? Has it lost its right to be called a news channel? Fox never was a news channel. It was founded in 1996 by a media political operative, Roger Ailes, as a political uh, uh, operation, not a journalistic operation. In journalism, uh, mainstream journalism, we think of our role as providing citizens with information so that they can make good choices about their life, so that they can be free and self-governing. That's the public service aspect. Of, of what we do. Fox was founded as essentially a propaganda network for conservative viewpoints. And at the time, the, the you know, Ailes may have been right. You certainly could have that voice on mainstream media, except Fox became so powerful, it became the dominant voice. And as the Republican, two things, as the Republican party and conservatism moved way to the right, especially in the last decade or so, Fox went with it, and that was their core audience, and that's how they made money. And Joan is absolutely right. They are now a prisoner of those kinds of profits, Um, and they have to keep feeding that beast of their core audience. I don't think I really, I, I really, it's impossible to predict at this point what's going to happen. This is serious, serious stuff. All the things Don said in his setup are absolutely right about First Amendment, about freedom of speech, about how you're going to operate as a mainstream news channel. Listen, this is one of the voices of mainstream uh, discourse in the conversation of American life. This is a big, big case. But I'll tell you what, short of getting blown out of the water by any kind of verdict, and Fox has the money certainly uh, to pay any kind of monetary fee, I don't think Fox is going to change. And I don't think its viewers, its core viewers, are going to run away. Fox has become a lifestyle. Fox has become a 24-7 sort of warm Let us jump in here, though, David. I know you've be got a lot to say.
0: Free.
3: But, Jonah, <laughs> you you worked there for 12 years. And I wonder if you agree with how he's characterizing that. Because, you know, like parts of the, the deposition that also stuck out that I don't think have been covered as much is, you know, Murdoch asking the CEO, Suzanne Scott, to say something supportive about Lindsey Graham, the quote was, we cannot lose the Senate if at all possible, the word we. But I wonder if you agree with the characterization that this is how Fox has always been, you were there for 12 years, or do you think it's changed?
12: Yeah, so, I mean, uh, heaven forfend, as a Goucher graduate, I disagree with a Goucher professor. But um, (laughs) I think that's that's overstated. It is always, look, I think I can say without any fear of contradiction, Roger Ailes was a flawed human being. But one of the things that he knew and understood was that the credibility of Fox News as a network depended on the credibility of the Fox News division. I know too many people who work in the Fox News division to this day who are serious, honest, and sincere journalists trying to do the job right. There are too many people, including who work at CNN, who got their starts or worked at the Fox for a while, and, uh, and have warm things to say about it, to just say it was always a political operation. I think the problem that happened at Fox was that the opinion side was allowed to run free. Everyone likes to think that this was some grand policy, the transformation of Fox set from above. It was really the lack of leadership under Susan Scott, the CEO, um, to rein in, curtail, discipline the primetime people in any way to the point where the opinion side basically became the dog wagging the tail instead of the other way around. And the news side just became sort of this cleanup crew, even in the Dominion filings. The news division comes out okay in this. Brett Baer and Special Report fact-checked this stuff. The problem is at the brand level, the brand was more important than uh, everything else. And for, for Rupert and those guys, the definition of the brand was a safe harbor to be a, to, a safe harbor for Trump supporters to hear only what they wanted to hear. But Jonah, that's not- hard
1: to break through when you have, when, when the noise is so loud coming from the morning show, which they consider to be entertainment, and then opinion. A very small portion of their programming, well, the day side programming is considered news. And it's very hard when you, get, when you see how many people actually watch the opinion side, which is way more people than watch uh, the news side. And it's hard to distinguish between what is opinion and what is news, and they really don't make a distinction about it. So that is, I, look, I, I understand, no, what, I I understand I what you're saying. Go on, go on.
12: across the media landscape, including at this network and at MSNBC, it's just wildly out of scale at Fox. And the problem is, is that the opinion side started to set the news agenda. The issues that got ratings for the opinion people became the issues that the news side largely reported on, and it just became this sort of uh, self-defeating process. And then they just got addicted to the cash, rate, the ratings, and the returns. And you know the old Chinese expression about riding the tiger—you can't get off because you're afraid it'll eat you. Okay, they so th- we got to go. But how did what happens? The then?
1: Can they get off of you this? Is there can, can they said, change? Can <laughs> they change after this? Can there be a reconfiguration of Fox News to bring it sort of back to? what Roger Ailes may have wanted it to be? If you're asking me, I think it it's gonna be very hard. I don't
7: think so.
1: Nope. Okay, both of you said, sorry, I don't think so. To I think it's gonna be very hard. I think that's <laughs> a consensus right there. Gentlemen, thank you both. To be continued, we'll continue to talk about it. Appreciate having you. you on. Uh, thank you, we're gonna have much, much more on the coverage of this story in our next hour here on CNN This Morning.
3: Also on CNN This Morning, we are going to talk about student loan and relief, whether or not it is on the table for millions of Americans or whether or not it's in jeopardy. Where does the Supreme Court stand after a critical hearing yesterday on President Biden's forgiveness plan?
0: Also new this morning, a big development from TikTok, rolling out a new feature to help teens cut back on their endless scrolling. We'll tell you what it means next. Welcome back to CNN This Morning. The first hearing of the House Select Committee on China kicked off last night with bipartisan concerns. One of the top concerns is the social media giant TikTok. Lawmakers want President Biden, some lawmakers want President Biden to ban the app from the U.S., citing security risks uh, because of its ownership by Chinese company ByteDance. Take a listen to what former Deputy National Security Advisor Matthew Pottinger testified about the dangers he sees in the app.
7: If TikTok is permitted to continue operating in the United States, and if WeChat and and other Chinese platforms are are allowed to continue to operate, is that it gives the Chinese Communist Party the ability to manipulate our social discourse, the news, uh, to censor and suppress or to amplify what tens of millions of Americans see
0: and read and experience and hear uh, through their social media app. TikTok's position is that is not the case, that it does not censor. But another real concern is the amount of time kids and teens spend on TikTok. Just announced moments ago, this is a big development this morning. TikTok says that every user under 18 years old will soon have their accounts defaulted to a one hour a day screen time limit. Teenagers can turn that setting off. But it's still one of the most aggressive safety moves yet by any social media company. Let's bring in Kara Swisher, host of the podcast On with Kara Swisher. And Pivot Kara, good to have you. Um, All right. When I read this, I was very happy. And then the qualifier that, yes, kids and teens can turn it off. But I have to say, I don't see Meta doing this. (laughs) I don't see Instagram or Facebook doing this. It's a big, important step, is it not?
5: Well, other, other services have limited screen time and put in lots of screen tools. Instagram has, in fact, done that, and but Snapchat But not a has. default. Uh, but not a default. Not a default. No, no. And so uh, it's, it's a nice uh, – look – Kids can turn it back on is the thing. In China, actually, they turn it off and that's off. Um, They have rules like that and they can't turn it back on. And obviously we can't do that in this country, but it it does. It it slows people down, but they'll continue to turn it on. And so that's a good thing. It's sort of reminding people. But I don't know how many teens are going to turn it off um, (laughs) or keep it off once the default's in place. I just don't think they will. It's an addictive uh, app, just the way all of them are. And it's the whole social media problem is that. TikTok is so good you can't stop watching it. And so, what? How do you solve that problem? And then, how do you solve what Matthew Pottinger was talking about, which is I've talked about for years, which is propaganda. Mm-hmm. I think more than censorship, but propaganda that is um, being broadcast uh, into this country, and you just don't know because it's uh, it's you know the influence of the Chinese Communist Party is is significant on companies like ByteDance, which owns. TikTok, even if the executives say otherwise. And I think they're very, they're being very sincere. You just don't know. And that's that's one of the big issues we have to cover.
3: And, and the thing is people think of TikTok as entertainment and they just watch the videos. You know, my dad, yeah. for example, just like watches the videos and thinks he's, it's just getting entertainment, but it also is becoming a news source for people. People are le- leaning on that instead of, you know, looking at the CNN app, for example. I mean, you think it's so dangerous. Don't you have mm. a burner phone for TikTok?
5: Yeah, I do. Many years ago, I wrote this. I said, I have a burner phone. I love it. It's a great app. I watch it. It's like potato chips or something. I don't know what to compare it to. But it is entertainment. And I had a burner phone and everyone made fun of me. And I was like, look, I don't want, uh, you know, it's so obvious that the Chinese Communist Party controls companies in China. There's no U.S. companies allowed in China. There's not a reciprocal thing going on. And so I felt like I'll just I like it. I'm going to use it here. And we'll see how it goes. But there's two separate things. One is the influence of the Chinese Communist Party. The second is the addictive nature of this thing. And it happens to be the best at it. It's not. It's a problem across social media. Self-esteem, especially for girls. Um, addictiveness. Time suck, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I, I challenge people to go on there and not put it down. It's really good the way it, it, it tweaks the algorithms to you in terms of entertainment. It's like watching... TV and leaving it on and staring at it. So you're a TikTok <laughs> potato, I guess. I don't
1: know. Well, I, <laughs> have, I have done your challenge. And I don't find it as addictive as maybe it's just because I'm not you know, that young. I'm not as young as you guys. But as Poppy was ticking through, like, you know, who's not going to do it? What hasn't been done? And you said, kids aren't going to do this. Right? So then to what Mm -hmm. end, if kids aren't going to use this, you know, time limit, then to what end? What should be done then, Carol?
5: What's the solution? Uh, uh, Parents. That's what should be done. Parents are going to have to put in the controls. And you can do that, that's for sure. And you could turn them off for good for your kids. But parents don't do that. Um, And that's the problem. I don't think it doesn't slow them down. Look, I like a stop sign like anybody else, you know, Mm -hmm. with teen drivers around. And it does slow them down. I just don't think... Uh, it's necessarily the solution. It's the addictive nature of these things. And all and all social media and these, you know, you're addicted to your phone, Don, I'm guessing, too. We oh, all am. I'm whether totally it's Twitter am. or whatever, whatever it is. And that's really at the heart of this is these are addictive devices. And so what do we do? It doesn't mean we don't use them. But what are the various things these companies can do? Because you know what they want you to do? Keep pushing that button in the casino, and, and, and that's, that's their business, unfortunately, because yeah. it's aligned with uh, advertising and uh, attention span.
1: More content so they can get more ads, put more ads in yeah. between the, our content. 100%.
5: And Cara, the thing th- goes
0: on. Thank
1: yeah. you
5: very much. <laughs> Good Thank to see you. you. Hi you. to the
1: kids Thanks. and the wife. Good to see you.
0: Thanks.
5: Yeah. Thank you.
1: Bye. Thank you. So uh, inflation is up. But food stamp benefits are going down, why millions of families across the country are going to lose much needed assistance this morning. We'll tell you about that. Welcome back to CNN this morning. Well, this morning, low income families are bracing for the end of emergency food stamp benefits because of the pandemic. More than 30 million people across 35 states were given extra money to buy food. Now those benefits are being cut, and they're being cut big time. Gabe Cohen joins us now live from Washington, D.C. Good morning, Gabe. How are families and communities planning to deal
13: with this? Well, Don, good morning. What it means right now is a tighter budget for a lot of people. Every household was getting at least $95 a month added to their SNAP benefit. But as of today, those extra funds are gone. And it is happening, as you mentioned, as inflation is squeezing Americans, especially those living paycheck to paycheck. And beans. Got a lot of those. Michelle Rickett stocked up her Pittsburgh pantry in February, knowing this month buying food oh, yeah. will be much tougher. I should be good till April. The 63-year- old is on food stamps, part of her fixed income, but she says her monthly snap benefit is about to go from 277 a month to23 dollars.: What will this mean for your budget?: I'm going to be sorry, stri- I'm going to be struggling. Wednesday marked the end of a pandemic hunger relief program. Emergency SNAP benefits passed by Congress at the start of COVID expired for more than 16 million U.S. households in 32 states and D.C. where they were still in place. On average, SNAP recipients will lose $98 per month, and some households, like Ricketts, could lose more than 250 as the program returns to its pre-pandemic totals.
5: It is going to be a big impact. We don't believe that they have a financial cushion based on everything we know about these households.
13: These benefits kept 4.2 million people out of poverty, lowering child poverty by 14 percent according to the Urban Institute. Inflation on much more than food continues to strain Americans.
5: We're going from 131
13: to 228. I don't even know how that happens. Michelle is behind on her surging power bills. She postponed her dog's vet appointment to save money.
14: I'm just feeling some anxiety about how what cuts I'm making and where. I'm sure I'll be going to the food bank.
13: But they just never had enough. In a survey, like roughly three quarters of U.S. food banks reported that ending these benefits is already driving up demand as donations drop and food cost surge. Are you worried about keeping up with demand? We are worried about keeping up with demand. Lisa Scales heads the Greater Pittsburgh Community Food Bank, which was $2 million over budget in the second half of last year Uh-oh. before the snap cuts. We're expecting to see a dramatic increase in the number of people we serve each month. Like Jody Sprinkle, a single mom waiting to find out how much her SNAP benefits will drop.
15: It's gonna hurt. That's one thing. It's gonna hurt.
13: In some states, these nonprofits say they may have to ration food or limit selection, so there's more to go around.
16: If our network can't meet the demand, it means that more and more kids will go to bed hungry, seniors will struggle. So Gabe, let's
1: discuss this. Let's talk about solutions. What can people do who receive these extra benefits? What can they do now?
13: Well, look, Don, a lot of this is going to fall on nonprofits, right? You saw uh, the food banks that are gearing up. People can look into the nonprofits in their area because there are a lot of services. Also, that government funding package that ended these benefits created a summer meals program for some 30 million children. So families will get some support there. And the USDA also operates a hunger hotline. Uh, The goal there is to connect families with emergency food providers, with government assistance, and with other social services. And bear in mind that millions of people likely um, uh, qualify for SNAP benefits or similar benefits. They don't even realize, especially seniors. So if you know of seniors who are struggling with food, you'll wanna get them connected with some of those services.
1: Yeah, And you see that number on the screen there, very important, the USAA Hunger Hotline, one 866 hungry Gabe, thank you.
3: Also this morning, the COVID-19 lab leak theory went from being shot down, outright dismissed, to now back in the spotlight. John Avalon is going to look back at the politicization of investigating the virus's true origins next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
13: Well, there needs to be a lot more investigation into the origin. It's very difficult to do if you don't
17: have access to the location in which it occurred. And We may not ever know. That's unfortunate, but that's the possibility that we might not ever know.
3: We may not ever know. More than a million Americans have died from COVID, a number that is still growing to this day. But despite how it started three years ago, we still have no definitive answer about how, how it began. The debate has been revived in recent days after the Energy Department updated its assessment to say that with low confidence, it does still believe it does now believe that it was likely the result of a lab leak. The FBI director, Christopher Wray, confirmed overnight for the first time publicly that his bureau does believe it was most likely a lab leak as well. That does not mean that is a consensus. There are still five other agencies that believe it was natural transmission. Dr. Anthony Fauci says we may never know how the pandemic ultimately began. This debate, though, has been politicized since the early days of the pandemic. So how did we get here? John Avalon, upon further review, I love this segment idea. What have you found?
7: We have found a significant shift in the conversation around the possibility of a lab leak because of shifting evidence. It's fascinating stuff. All right, so the Department of Energy's assessment that a Chinese lab leak was the likely cause of the COVID pandemic is big news. Not because the matter's now settled, not by a long shot. This assessment is, after all, graded low confidence. But it is more evidence that the Biden administration is actively investigating an idea that was once being actively shut down, dismissed by some as an anti-Chinese conspiracy theory. And that's the subject of today's Upon Further Review. Now, the first steps during a pandemic are to slow the spread, then find a vaccine. Finger pointing isn't going to solve those problems. But knowing the origin helps us figure out what went wrong, so it's less likely to happen again. So let's dig into the debate around the origins of COVID. Here's what we know. The virus, of course, first reported in humans in Wuhan, China, traced to a seafood wet market that also just happens to be very close to a government virology lab and the local Chinese version of the CDC. Here's another piece of relevant information accidental lab leaks happen a lot don't take my word for it here's former
18: fda commissioner scott gottlieb these kinds of lab leaks happen all the time uh, actually even here in the united states we've had mishaps and in china the last six known outbreaks of sars-1 have been out of labs
7: so given that you
18: might think that at the outset all theories would have been
7: considered equally open to investigation but that's not quite what happened On February 19th, 2020, weeks before lockdowns in the USA, a letter signed by 27 scientists appeared in the British medical journal The Lancet that read in part, We stand together to strongly condemn conspiracy theories, suggesting that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. Conspiracy theories. And that sort of set the tone, right? Scientific inquiry in the direction of a lab leak was seen as suspect. So when former CDC director Dr. Robert Redfield told CNN this,
2: I still think the most likely uh, etiology of this
7: pathogen in Wuhan was a, from a laboratory, um, you know, escaped. Redfield was stunned by the kickback he received from the scientific community. And when John Stewart raised questions about a lab leak, he was also surprised by the backlash. Here's how we described it yesterday.
8: The two things that came out of it were, I'm racist against Asian people and how dare I align myself with the alt-right? Now, this may be the only recorded instance where
7: Jon Stewart had an experience share with a Trump official. But China, of course, is quick to angrily deny the lab leak theory and condemn it as a xenophobic slur, which would have a lot more weight if China didn't have a record of suppressing information and silencing COVID whistleblowers. Over time, more and more evidence has suggested That a lab leak theory can't be dismissed, including intelligence reports that Wuhan lab workers got sick from an unspecified illness in November of 2019, shortly before public reports of a local infection. In May 21, The Washington Post even offered a helpful timeline on, quote, how the Wuhan lab leak theory suddenly became credible. That fall, the Biden administration's intelligence assessment came back with a mixed bag, with most agencies saying there wasn't enough evidence to determine natural origin or lab leak, though, notably the FBI-backed lab leak theory with moderate confidence, which Director Chris Ray doubled down on just yesterday. Now, on the flip side, in the summer of 22, two peer-reviewed articles published in the journal Science found that the most likely origin was natural transmission at the wet market. To take it all together, it's a reminder that science isn't ever settled. It's a process of the accumulation of knowledge and data constantly building upon itself toward human progress. The missing pieces of this investigation are on China. As Dr. Deborah Burke said on CNN this morning just yesterday.
15: We're never going to get the data from China. China has not been transparent. we were not transparent with COVID in 2019. They're not transparent today in 2023.
7: So given that... In some ways, all we can say definitively is that the origins of COVID are not a settled question. That's exactly why we need more independent, open-minded, data-driven investigations. Pursuing the facts without fear or favor is what we should always do. And trying to shut down debate because of political discomfort is what we should never do. That should be clear upon further review.
3: Two things really stick out to me. One, which is Being a lab leak accidental does not mean it's some man-made, you know, bioweapon, as a lot of people on the far right said. But also the idea that that China could help with this investigation. And as officials say, they're actively blocking it. They're never going to provide that.
7: Every step of the way. And that other point is so important. You can have a lab leak is acts can be accidental. It doesn't need to be a nefarious bioweapon. In fact, that's one of the few points of consensus among all Americans' intelligence communities.
3: Yeah, which is really important to note. Absolutely.
7: John
0: Avon, that was a really good look back. Thank you for doing thank that. You. All right, take care. Yeah, thank you, John. Um, next we're gonna take you live to Capitol Hill, where House Speaker Kevin McCarthy is defending his decision to share thousands of hours all of the January sixth insurrection footage with Fox, with those who with Tucker Carlson, those who downplayed the attack.
19: Thought it was a concerned. very serious attack, it's and, a very serious attack. and why give why it I to someone who is down? Because I think sunshine matters.
8: So the only way that the airspace system can handle more flights and full flights is by getting them off the runway faster. So they need to slow these things down and get back to what is a sensible rate when we talk about departures. And it may delay it. It may be where you can't get the flights that you want to have at this point, but they have to do something about trying to slow the system down.
1: So you're just sitting there. You have no control, you don't know what's yeah. going to happen. You don't hear from the air traffic control folks. You don't know what's going on. All of these near misses.
3: Let me tell you, I've been scary. buckling up on my flights more lately.
1: Yeah, <laughs> okay. wait, you didn't buckle up? Well, (laughs) On
3: a flight. On a flight.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, this is a big problem. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to CNN this morning. So glad you could join us. We have to talk about another alarming close call at one of America's biggest airports, this time between a private jet and a JetBlue flight that was coming in for a landing. That makes five close calls in just two months. It's way too many. I don't think it's normal. We're going to check. Does the FAA have a serious problem on his hands? Pete Monteen will help us break it down.
0: Also to Chicago and the mayoral race there, where Chicago's Mayor Lori Lightfoot has lost re-election, didn't even advance to the runoff, rising crime, the dominant issue in that race. What does her defeat mean big picture? Also a
3: rare show of bipartisanship in Washington in the House, the new House Select Committee on China is vowing to investigate Beijing's threat to America Is it all talk, though, or they could actually deliver some action here? We're going to talk to a Democrat who's on that committee, Congressman Seth Moulton, in the coming hour.
1: Lots to come in this hour. We're going to begin, though, with another, yet another disaster at one of America's busiest airports. The FAA is now investigating five near misses between planes in just two months. Five near misses between planes in just two months. The latest close call was in Boston. It happened on Monday night. Air traffic controllers stopped a private jet from taking off and running into a JetBlue flight that was coming in for a landing. It comes just weeks after a FedEx cargo plane nearly landed on top of a Southwest flight in Austin, Texas. Federal investigators say that they were both cleared to take off and land on the same runway. The FedEx pilot was the one who told the Southwest crew to abort. They came within 100 feet of each other. Just weeks ago, there was a close call in Honolulu. The NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board, says a United Airlines flight crossed a runway in front of a cargo plane that was landing. And days before that, an American Airlines jetliner crossed a runway where a Delta Airlines flight was taking off at New York's JFK Airport. Pete Monteen, on top of the story, the very latest on this close call, one is way too many, but now we have a series. What is going on, Pete?
20: Well, the big question here, Don, is why all these incidents are coming to light right now. The NTSB not investigating this one just yet, but we do have some very key and clear details from Flight Radar 24. They've reviewed preliminary details which say that these two flights came within 560 feet of each other. This was a very close call. It is the latest incident of a near collision at a major airport. Monday night, a JetBlue flight and a private Learjet nearly running into each other on crisscrossing runways at Boston Logan International
8: Airport. This was a mistake that was made by the pilot and it was caught by air traffic control, which is their job. So they were able to catch it.
20: The Federal Aviation Administration says as JetBlue flight 206 was coming into land on runway four right, the Learjet took off from the intersecting runway. Air traffic control recordings detail the pilot of the JetBlue flight being directed to abort its landing, the FAA classifying the move as evasive action.
13: It'll land four right, JetBlue 206.
2: JetBlue 206, yeah. correct. 206 fly runway heading, maintain 3,000.
13: runway heading up to, uh, sorry, sitting in on the altitude?
11: 3,000.
13: 3,000, JetBlue 206.
20: Worse yet, the FAA says the Learjet did not have takeoff clearance. Instead, the crew was told to line up and wait on the runway for the landing JetBlue flight. The FAA says the Learjet pilot read back instructions clearly, but began a takeoff roll instead. Air traffic control brought the JetBlue flight back in for a landing, all on board unharmed. The pilots did a really incredible job. I mean, we we came in, it was a scary situation, but it was very smooth. Like, it wasn't like it was a jolting experience. It wasn't a jerky experience. We just went back up into the air and came back around and landed. The incident is the fifth of its type this year, following similar close calls at New York's JFK, Austin, Honolulu and Burbank. Last month, the FAA's acting administrator told Congress that recent events remind us we must not become complacent and vowed a sweeping safety review.
21: There's a lot of pressure right now on our airspace. And so we need to make sure that our regulatory system is um, as safe as it can be, that the aviation system as safe as it can be.
20: The FAA tells me it will determine how close these flights actually came to one another. But let's put this into context, Don. 560 feet, we're talking less than two football fields. The NTSB not investigating this just yet, but the good news here is that the safety system did work. The controller noticed that problem, averted that collision, averting disaster. Don.
1: Wow. Pete Monteen, thank you.
3: Also this morning, the Biden administration is maintaining it does have the power to forgive student loan debt. This was during oral arguments at a very high stakes hearing before the Supreme Court yesterday. But several of the conservative justice justices appeared skeptical of the government's authority to actually be able to discharge millions of dollars in loans. Since Joan Biskupic is covering all of this live in Washington, as always. Joan, <laughs> these conservative justices seem very skeptical that that the Biden administration has the power to do this.
14: That's right, Caitlin. Good morning. Uh, There were two main themes that emerged from the right side of the bench. First, just in terms of overreach. You know, uh, what's at issue here is a 2003 law passed in the wake of 9-11 called the HEROES Act that allows the Secretary of Education to waive or modify uh, federal student loans in national emergencies. And, you know, several of the justices led by the chief, John Roberts, said, you know, you're talking about nearly half a trillion uh, dollars here, more than 43 million borrowers, how does that just involve modifying loans? Uh, And he said the statute, he suggested and other conservatives did, that the statute just wouldn't allow it. Now, Elena Kagan on the liberal side said, this statute is clear in terms of giving the secretary of education authority for emergencies. Of course, Congress couldn't spell out all emergencies. That's what emergencies are all about. But then the other issue was fairness, Caitlin. Uh, The chief and and others and Neil Gorsuch, who we'll hear from in a second, talked about how is it fair that uh, someone who borrowed money from – Uh, the federal government to go to college is then going to be able to take advantage of taxpayer money to pay it back when someone who wasn't even able to have the opportunity for college, it will be without and essentially have uh, not the same kind of earning power. Let's listen to Neil Gorsuch on that topic right now.
22: What I think they argue that is missing is cost to other persons in terms of fairness, for example, people who've paid their loans, people who um, have planned their lives around not seeking loans um, and people who are not eligible for loans in the first place. And that a half a trillion dollars is being diverted to one group of favored persons over others.
14: So, Caitlin, there were a range of issues from the conservatives. But one last thing I'll mention is that there is a a gateway question of whether the states and the two uh, borrowers who weren't uh, eligible for these loans uh, are able to even bring the case. And that's where uh, the liberals really tried to make a case here that they should the full court should not reach the merits. And that's the one thing that the Biden administration can cling to here, Caitlin.
3: Yeah. And Joan, as you know as well as I do, Washington is divided right now. Democrats control the Senate. Republicans yeah. control the House. One t- takeaway that I notice is they seem to also just cast doubt on the idea of executive power overall and how far Biden can go, which obviously would limit what he can do going forward for the rest of his time in this term in office.
14: You know, that's exactly right, Caitlin. We've seen just in the uh, recent years this court uh, reigning in what the Biden administration had to, tried to do in in other uh, COVID-19 uh, types of cases. And then just last year, Caitlin, I know uh, you're recalling the uh, EPA case when the justices, by a 6-3 vote, uh, limited what the Biden administration can do to uh, protect air quality with uh, regarding power plant emissions. So this is a real theme here of this court mirroring what the polarization we see uh, in the other branches that this court just really is trying to put the hammer down on regulatory power and executive branch power, particularly now that we have Joe Biden in the White House. Yeah, it's
3: fascinating to see what happens. Of course, so many people's lives hangs in the balance on this. Joan Biskupic, great reporting, great jacket color this morning. Thank you so much.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Kate. Aligned on all fronts. (laughs) Uh, This morning, an update for you. FBI Director Christopher Wray making his first public comments about the FBI's COVID lab leak theory. This is a new interview in which Wray says it has been the FBI's assessment for some time now that the virus, quote, most likely originated in a, quote, Chinese government controlled lab.
2: You know, the FBI has folks, agents, professionals, analysts, virologists, microbiologists, et cetera, who focus specifically on the dangers of biological threats, which include things like novel viruses, like COVID, uh, and the concerns that they're in the wrong hands, some bad guys, a hostile nation state, a terrorist, a criminal, uh, the threats that those, those could pose. So here, you're talking about a potential leak from a Chinese government-controlled lab that killed millions of Americans. And that's precisely what that capability uh, was designed for.
0: Just days ago, the Department of Energy said they have concluded with, quote, low confidence that the virus emerged from a lab in Wuhan. A Chinese official responded to that saying the U.S. report stop stirring up arguments about laboratory leaks, stop smearing China, and stop politicizing the issue of the virus origin.
1: A race that Democrats should be paying close attention to. I'll tell you why in a moment, because there will be no second term for Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot. She lost her bid for re-election on Tuesday, failing to finish in the top two for a runoff election. Here's why. Democrats should be concerned because voters are expressing growing concerns about crime in one of the nation's largest cities. And they're doing it all over the country in the nation's largest city is cities. This is the first time in more than three decades that Chicago has voted a sitting mayor out of office. Watch.
5: Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. And regardless of tonight's outcome. We fought the right fights, and we put this city on a better path. No doubt about it.
1: So it's going to be between these two guys. Paul Vallis, a longtime public schools chief, and Brandon Johnson, a Cook County commissioner, backed by progressives, and the Chicago Teachers Union. They will advance in an April runoff to replace Lightfoot.
0: House Speaker Kevin McCarthy's office says that he will allow defendants facing criminal charges in the January 6th Capitol attack to access security video footage from that day. House Republicans are defending that move and claiming it's a way to ensure due process. Melanie Zanona joins us live from Capitol Hill. Good morning. Is this a uh, sort of follow on to his agreement to give all of the unedited footage to uh, Tucker Carlson of Fox News?
21: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Poppy. Kevin McCarthy promised to release this footage as part of his bid to become speaker and to win over his right flank. But he is not just releasing this to the media. We have also learned at CNN that the House Administration Committee has started making accommodations so that lawyers for January 6th defendants can start coming in and view this footage. It was an issue that came up in court, and Kevin McCarthy has defended that move. He says it's important in the name of transparency and due process, and he also claimed that Speaker Nancy Pelosi also gave access to defendants for January 6th, a a charge that her office denies. But this does come amid a broader debate on Capitol Hill about who should and should not have access to this January 6th footage. McCarthy has agreed to give the exclusive to Fox News host Tucker Carlson, someone who has downplayed the insurrection, spread conspiracy theories about it. And that has caused concern, not just among Democrats, but even among some Republicans. And so we learned that yesterday, Kevin McCarthy behind closed doors worked to assure his members that security would not be compromised with the release of this video. They're trying to work with Capitol Police to ensure that vulnerabilities aren't exposed. And he also promised that other media outlets will eventually get access to this footage, but he warned it's a process and it's going to take time. Poppy. Melanie, thank you. Quite a development. Yeah. All right. Up next
3: this morning, we're going to talk about whether or not Fox News' billionaire owner, Rupert Murdoch, and his testimony in the defamation case against them creates an existential crisis for the
21: network. What does
3: it mean? We've got the First Amendment guru, Floyd Abrams, and a former Trump insider, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, here to break it down with their perspective next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Fox faces an existential threat from its multi-billion dollar defamation case. That is the headline from CNN Business this morning after that explosive legal filing that came into public view this week. These are some of the biggest revelations if you missed it. The billionaire owner Rupert Murdoch conceded that four of the main hosts on the airwaves, including Sean Hannity and Lou Dobbs, formerly, endorsed lies about the 2020 election. Yes, he said in his deposition, quote, they endorsed. He also said he wished that Fox would have been, quote, stronger in denouncing those lies in hindsight He told a reporter that half of what Trump was saying was, quote, B.S. and damaging. He also admitted that Hannity was, quote, privately disgusted by Trump, but scared to lose viewers. Fox's legal team says those quotes that are coming out don't tell the full story. They've called the lawsuit dubious, but they've also cited the First Amendment as a defense there. Joining us now to talk about this is renowned First Amendment attorney Floyd Abrams and the former communications director of the Trump White House, Alyssa Farrah Griffin, Thank you both for being here this morning. Floyd, I want to start with you because you, who have argued before the Supreme Court many times, you believe this is actually a a landmark case.
23: I think it's an extremely threatening case to Fox. And and I think it's a very important case. Uh, There hasn't been one, I would say, uh, involving the media, not not just broadcast, uh, which uh, so threatened the legitimacy of an enormous player uh, in terms of informing the American public.
0: Do, do you think, on that point, that it could have the potential to move the malice bar? What What Times V. Sullivan set out is—is is that what no. you're saying, or not really? No,
23: I, I think on on that front, it's just ironic that it's the conservatives the on other the other way around who want to move the bar. Uh, uh, I don't think it'll be. I I'm hopeful at least it's not going to be moved but but uh, Fox is quite understandably clutching it uh, you know a raft and a and a sea uh, because it's very important to their defense so I would, let's get to I, I would get to you in just one moment Alyssa Faragraff, because I want to see about, about the audience
1: here but you're making the point that we talked about earlier in our conversation where I said this was this has more than just Uh, an impact, of what happens with Fox News, what will the viewers think? That's all very important. But this is First Amendment, freedom of the press. Um, You have uh, a news organization allegedly in collusion uh, with political players here, uh, lying to their audiences, um, uh, potentially, or at at least in many people's eyes, in the court's eyes, or at least in Dominion's eyes, um, starting an insurrection. There's so much at stake here And as you said, this is one of the biggest cases involving the media than I can remember in recent history. This is not just small potatoes.
23: No, it's it's big time. Look, Fox is big time. The amount of viewers it has, the impact it has on the public. And uh, here's a case, I mean, I can't help but think that any new lawyer, and I'll bet any of the old lawyers said to someone at Fox, maybe this would be a good case to put behind you. Maybe there's some way to settle this consistent with rationality. I mean, if they're asking for blank, of course you won't do it. But Why isn't that happening? I don't think we know. Uh, I, uh, if I had to guess, I'll bet there have been talks, but yeah. I, I don't know that. Uh, it's just inconceivable to me that as savvy, whatever else one says about the Fox people, as savvy as they are, that it hasn't occurred to them that they would really be in much better shape if they could just say, mm-hmm. we paid the money, we didn't do anything wrong, but, you know, we, it's over.
3: Yeah. Alyssa, you worked in the Trump White House. You know the influence and the communication that there often was between Trump himself, Trump officials, and a lot of these hosts. What do you think about the political fallout of how damaging what we're learning is?
24: Well, despite having direct insight into how, you know, linked at times the Trump White House was with Fox News, I was even very shocked to hear about, to read about Rupert Murdoch actually sharing a Joe Biden ad with Jared Kushner, a former senior White House advisor. I didn't know about that. I would be surprised if that was something that was widely known, but it spells some issues for the Republican Party. So take, for example, the fact uh, Fox News will likely host a Republican primary debate. Who's to say that Fox, as the network, won't put their finger on the scale in favor of the candidate who gets them the best views and the best ratings? Like this has always come down to there's a quote from Rupert Murdoch where he's like, it's not red or blue, it's green. It's about making money. So there's a lot of potential fallout, I think, for both the Fox audience and the people who consume that information. But also this is the scary part. Most Fox viewers aren't going to hear gonna about answer. this. But they're not even aware. They're not going to, they're not aware. I've been texting family members who are in that space just, hey, are you aware of this? Because you're aware you're being rampantly
0: lied to. Let's play one Howard Kurtz, who is a Fox employee who anchors their media show every week. Here's what he said about being muzzled. Here he was.
20: Some of you have been asking why I'm not covering the Dominion Voting Machines lawsuit against Fox involving the unproven claims of election fraud in 2020. And it's absolutely a fair question. I believe I should be covering it. It's a major media story, given my role here at Fox. But the company has decided that as part of the organization being sued, I can't talk about it or write about it, at least for now.
1: They don't know. They're not going to hear
13: about
24: it. Uh, you know what? And good for Howard Kurtz for telling the truth. Um, but as we've seen throughout these depositions, people have been penalized, or at least they've been asked you know, by senior people in the ex- uh, executive suite to penalize people for telling the truth. I think of Jackie Heinrich, a very serious reporter at Fox, who's just trying to do her job fact-checking the election lies. And Tucker Carlson, you know, is texting executives she should be fired. So it actually takes a bit of bravery to go on your own airwaves and say, hey, the executives are muzzling me.
1: Especially as um, he is the media reporter. He covers uh, the media. Is that, uh, do you think that, is that legit for him, for Fox to say, listen, there's so much at stake here, we can't have you discussing
23: just in case, just because. Anything he says will be held against them. Uh, and, I, you know, I, I get why they don't want him to speak. Suppose he says anything honest, straight and critical of them. That then goes in the brief uh, of dominion, as even Fox's own ex has said that and uh, acknowledged that. Uh, they mean, that they're in a, a, a situation now where almost any commentary and, God knows, emails or the like, which surely they must have learned by now, that they are turned over in litigation. I mean, they're, they're suffering as much from what they said to each other in writing mm-hmm. as anything else because there's one embarrassment after another. There's one statement after another, which is harmful to them, uh, in the litigation, uh, and, and it's it's not. I said this, and then someone else says, "I don't remember it that way." Here it is. This this is what they said. It's uh, so. Look, it would be a... uh, No, please,
24: go on. No, no, no. I was just going to say, Donald Trump is a big part of this, by the way, because he started to create the narrative after he spread the election lies that, you know, Newsmax is where we should be going, One America News Network is where true believers are going. Mm -hmm. So there was this sense of fear within Fox that they were going to lose market share to those outlets. Mm -hmm. The reality is that they never even picked up enough that it in a major way affected the very high viewership that Fox News had. But you can just see sort of the fear that he instilled in the big-time host, the primetime time host. And I just want to say, like, there's a lot of really good journalists at Fox. Dayside programming, I don't have really any major problems with, but primetime's where they make their money, and it has descended into conspiracy mongering. It is basically anything to get people to tune in and drive viewership and not risk losing to the fringier outlets.
1: Wow. It's interesting that, though, not even a straightforward news story about this is what's happening. Dominion is accusing Fox News Can of be this. The- Fox News responded this way. There should be could be a straightforward news story without any commentary if they don't want to do commentary that can explain to their viewers exactly what is happening. They don't to. want it to exist. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it does. <laughs> My favorite, Abrams. I would say <laughs> don't tell Dan, tell Dan, but please tell Dan. This is Dan Abrams' dad, by the way, who is uh, right. often on
3: our
0: program. Floyd, well, Alyssa, thank you both thank for you. joining us this sure. morning. Sure, thanks. Well, ahead, Russian forces pummeling uh, continues their assault on eastern Ukraine. Bakhmut is in especially bad condition after thousands of civilians remain in that city. We have a live report from Ukraine next.
1: And this morning CNN is taking you to one of the remote regions on the planet. Our very own Bill Weir is heading to Antarctica and will join us live from the southern tip of Argentina. An area known as the end of the world. What is he learning from satellite images about changes to Antarctica Sea? Sea ice, I should say. That's next. What an assignment.
0: Always the best. That was, that was really
3: The fighting in Ukraine this morning is intensifying in the east as re- Russia is conducting relentless Attacks. Soldiers in Bakhmut are describing a worsening situation on the ground. Russian forces are continuing to apply pressure as they have been working to capture the city. CNN is told there are still about 4,500 civilians, including children, in the region. The Ukrainian military has not made the decision to withdraw from the city, but of course, that is a major question this morning. CNN's Alex Markwart is live in eastern Ukraine. Alex, what are we seeing on the ground? Because I know this has been something that Russia has been pursuing and pursuing and pursuing. What does it look like right
0: now?
18: Well, Caitlin, fierce fighting all along this eastern front, but nowhere more so than the city of Bakhmut. That is where the most difficult fighting is taking place, according to President Zelensky, who says those Ukrainian defensive positions are just getting pounded by Russian forces. He says that the Russians are taking significant casualties, but we know that the Ukrainians are as well. And this morning, Caitlin, a spokesman for the Ukrainian military here in eastern Ukraine, says that no decision has been made about whether to pull back from the city, but it is clearly Something that they are considering at this point as the Russians press forward, as they try to loop around the city, encircling Ukrainian forces in and around the city. Uh the Russians claim that they have taken some territory north of Bakhmut. And now, according to that same spokesman, the Russian forces that are that are at the at the at the front, if you will, are the most experienced Wagner mercenaries, uh fighters who have seen combat elsewhere, like in Syria and in Libya. And Caitlin, we did speak with a Ukrainian soldier inside the city uh, just yesterday, who said uh, that the situation is 100 percent more difficult uh, than Ukrainian officials are willing to admit. But the same soldier saying uh, that they are not going to give the city up without a fight, that they are standing their ground as long as they can. Caitlin?
3: Yeah, standing it as long as they can. We'll see how long that is. If they do withdraw or if Russia does take the city, Alex, what is the like, explain to people why that matters, why that would be such a big deal for Russia.
18: Well, it would be a hugely symbolic victory, and Ukraine is hoping to keep it just a symbolic victory. Uh, right now, it does not look like it would shift the battlefield all that much. There are two things that Ukraine is trying to do right now if uh, if russia were to take bakhmut russia uh, ukraine is digging in just to the west of the city to make sure that russia can't advance any further ukraine is also trying to bleed russia at this point really just trying to kill as many russian soldiers as possible in bakhmut so that if they take the city uh, that they are weakened that they won't be able to advance in the near future past that at the same time we know that ukraine is preparing a counteroffensive that they do plan in the coming weeks uh, to try to push forward to reclaim territory from the Russians. Uh, we don't know when or where that is going to take place, but that is something that is very much in the works. Caitlin?
3: All right, Alex Marquardt, please stay safe and keep us updated, thank you.
18: So
1: even as this part of Northern Hemisphere is experiencing another near record warm winter and glaciers are retreating around the Arctic Circle, scientists are warning that the sea ice around Antarctica is, has dropped to its lowest level. Breaking the record set just last year. Look at that on your screen. So Antarctica's uh, sea ice is now at its lowest point since satellites started monitoring the levels in 1979. Our chief climate correspondent, Bill Weir, joins us now live from near the southern tip of Argentina. Man, oh man, you have to admit, it is beautiful. I'm not talking about you. You're okay. But look at that. You're at, what oh, is not it? Nothing. Ushua. It's gorgeous. Oh, nothing it's gorgeous. compared to
8: this, Don. Yeah. Who knew? Yeah. Who knew that the end of the world would be so gorgeous? And check out the maybe the most beautiful soccer pitch in the world <laughs> right over there. That's some guy's yard. That's fit for Lionel Messi here in Argentina. Uh, that island over in the distance is a Chilean national park, and on the other side of that is Antarctica. That's why we're here. I'm about to get on a boat with whale scientists and go on an adventure to study those amazing creatures. But while we're here, we got this news out of the. National Snow and Ice Center in Colorado that for the second year in a row, the South Pole is shrinking. The ice down here is shrinking. It's sea ice, so it's not affecting sea level rise much the way that when the ice cubes in your glass uh, melt, they don't spill your drink. Uh, But that's very worrying because... Antarctica is a continent surrounded by oceans, and that sea ice protects those ice shelves from unlocking all that ice, which if it dumps into the oceans in mass, would rearrange every city from Miami to Shanghai along the coast around the world. So what is troubling about this is the speed that it's declined. Just to give you some perspective, uh, in the early 2000s, it looked like Antarctica was growing even as the Arctic was shrinking in alarming ways, and scientists weren't sure why. In 2014, the sea ice around Antarctica, 7 million square miles. Now, less than a decade later, it's under 700,000 square miles. So that's a 90% drop, and they're just worried that this could be a tipping point that makes that vulnerable, and then on from there, it's, it's just uh, one domino after another of a kind of disasters we really don't want to imagine but have to think about, especially for people, leaders who live on coasts. Is there
1: anything that can be done to really slow this horrible, extreme situation, Bill?
8: It's the it's the same answer as it as it has been for generations. The faster we can move away from fuels that burn, uh, the, the in the speediest and most equitable way possible the less horrible this gets. That's the, that's the only way right now. And not only stopping the, it at the source, but pulling carbon out of the sea and sky. Carbon removal is going to be the biggest industry you've never heard of as people come to grips with the enormity of this. But uh, to, to put this in perspective, Antarctica was discovered almost 40 years after the planet Uranus. It's so remote, it's so harsh, we're just now really understanding it. But when they send these robots that look like uh, torpedoes under these big ice shelves, like the Thwaites, and see that they're hanging on by fingernails, we really got to pay attention to something that seems so far away.
1: Bill, you're so right. I mean, you look at our planet; it's just so beautiful, but yet so fragile. You know, I watch all these documentaries about space and the planets, or whatever, and it's uh, we live in such a unique, wonderful place that we've got to do something to preserve it, to keep it that way. Mr. Bill Weir. That's a good answer. Look how beautiful that is. Bill, thank you.
0: That was great. All right, coming up, a rare demonstration of unity across the aisle in Congress last night as lawmakers warned of the threat posed by China as the House Select Committee on China held its first hearing. Congressman Seth Moulton is one of those lawmakers, and he's here next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Welcome back. Last night, bipartisan lawmakers warned of the threat posed by the Chinese Communist Party. During the first hearing of the House Select Committee on China, it was a really a rare demonstration of unity across the aisle in Congress in an increasingly divided Congress on partisan lines. Listen to this.
20: This is an existential struggle over what life will look like in the 21st century. And the most fundamental freedoms are at stake. Like Vladimir
11: Putin, Xi Jinping seems to believe his own propaganda. So how do we make our powerful deterrent believable to Xi and the Chinese Communist Party so that they don't draw us into war?
0: This hearing comes amid really increasing tension between China and the West, a spy balloon incident, U.S. warnings that China is considering lethal aid to Putin's army and escalating standoffs over Taiwan. And those are just a few, by the way. So let's talk about this with the man you just heard from, House Select Committee uh, member on China, Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. Congressman Moulton, thank you very much. Good to see you, Bobby. Good to see you, too. Struck by the hearing last night, particularly when you asked H.R. McMaster, uh, President Trump's former national security advisor, this, quote, How do we make our powerful deterrent believable to Xi, President Xi, so they don't draw us into war? What what were you saying? Do you think war with China is possible in the next few years? Probable?
11: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Xi Jinping has said that he wants to take back Taiwan and we have made it very clear, the president has said uh, that we don't want that to happen. And the problem is that when we look at all the success we've had in Europe with Ukraine, I mean, no one imagined the Ukrainians would be doing this well. No one imagined that NATO would be this strong, standing united against the Russian threat. Despite all that success, we have to admit that deterrence failed, that we weren't able to prevent a war in Europe before it started. We can't afford to let deterrence fail in the Pacific. I mean, we could wake up one morning, Poppy, and see two American aircraft carriers at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean, thousands of young Americans under the sea. So we can't let that happen. We've got to understand how to make sure that we not only have a strong deterrent in the Pacific, but that she believes it. You know, he does believe his own propaganda, and Mm -hmm. we can't have him make the same miscalculation as his autocratic brother, Vladimir Putin, and think that the Americans and the West are not going to be united to stop him.
0: Just to be very clear for the American people, Congressman, I said two things. I said possible and then I said probable. Do you think U.S. war with China, you know, sparked by Taiwan, sparked because of a potential invasion of Taiwan, is probable in the next several years?
11: It's certainly possible, but I don't think it's probable because our deterrent is so strong but again, we've got to make that clear, not just to us, it's not just about whether we believe that we can uh, resist the Chinese mm-hmm. and, their, and their aggression, but that the Chinese Communist Party believes this as well, and they don't just believe their own well, rhetoric.
0: One of the um, things that I'm going to be watching closely as this committee does its work is the private sector. Uh, because uh, we heard your, the chairman of the committee, Congressman Mike Gallagher, tell CBS on Sunday that the committee is, quote, hoping to have a conversation first with the NBA, with Disney, and other companies. Do do you plan on calling in NBA commissioner Adam Silver, for example, Disney CEO Bob Iger, and you have subpoena power, so you could subpoena CEOs if needed?
11: Well, we haven't made specific decisions on individuals, but the point is that this is a broad threat. The Chinese Communist Party is not just a military threat to the United States and our allies. They're an economic threat. Uh, They're a threat to their own people. I mean, they're committing genocide against some of their citizens and repressing every one of the rest, repressing Chinese citizens, even overseas, even here in America. So this is a very broad threat. And the mandate of this committee is to look at all aspects of competition between the Chinese Communist Party and the United States. So we're certainly going to get into these economic issues. And there's a lot of work to do there. These are tricky things because our economies are intertwined. But the threat is real and we have to address it.
0: Well, let me move on to something else we've been covering all morning, the revelations from Rupert Murdoch's deposition in the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News. What I think is so interesting is that you're someone who has gone on and continued to go on Fox News for interviews. You've written op-eds for them. You continue to do so since the 2020 election. President Biden has not once appeared on Fox News since he became president. I wonder if these revelations in this lawsuit change your view of appearing on that network.
11: It doesn't change my view of Fox, frankly. I think that nobody should be surprised uh, that they don't believe uh, their own, the, own, their, the things that they're saying themselves. I mean, that's what this lawsuit uh, has revealed, right? That you have people like Tucker Carlson and Sean Annity spouting Trump's lies and privately saying, of course, they're not true. But the reality is for us, I mean, I represent everybody In my district in massachusetts democrats republicans trump supporters biden supporters and people who don't even vote and so i think it's important to speak to all of them and that's why i'll continue going on fox i think i'm on cnn more though
0: well look you say we i know what they are but i'm still going because i want people to hear what i have to say um so Let's move on to this. One of the reasons you're here this morning is what you and Congressman Clyburn have reintroduced. And this is legislation to provide black World War II veterans and their descendants with really long overdue GI Bill benefits, benefits that were not shared equally, that they did not get in the way their white counterparts did. You didn't get it through last time. What are the prospects now and why are you doing this?
11: Well, the amazing thing about this legislation, which just simply restores the G.I. Bill benefits that were promised and were earned, uh, promised to these veterans and earned by them for fighting in World War II, no matter who I talk to, they think this is a good idea. doesn't matter if you're an ultra-conservative, Republican, Democrat, uh, far left or far right, we all know that this is the right thing to do. And as a veteran who, who literally would not be standing here in the Capitol today without the G.I. Bill, I'm just shocked that so many black Americans were denied this benefit they had earned. Listen to this, Poppy. In, in Northern uh, New Jersey and New York, in, in the area where your studio is, mm-hmm. in 1947, there were 67,000 home loans issued to US veterans, 67,000. Out of those 67,000, 100 went to black veterans. Wow. And, 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 and buying a home or getting a college education, those are the two most important ways to earn generational wealth in America. Mm -hmm. So we owe it, not just to these veterans, but to their families to do the right thing. And as a veteran myself, it might not be my generation's fault that this happened, but it is absolutely my generation's opportunity to fix it.
0: We really appreciate your time. Thank you for that. And thank you for your service to this country, Congressman. Thank you, Poppy. Thank you, Don.
1: Okay, so check your clock right now, your watch, your phone, however you look at the time. In the amount of time between now and the top of the hour, right, not far away, you could heat up some oatmeal, you could maybe take a quick shower, or you could do something that lowers your risk of heart disease and cancer. Hmm, Dr. Sanjay Gupta will tell us what it is. That's next.
20: Leonard Skinner, really?
15: Favorite
1: band. I love Leonard Skinner. Free Bird, right? A song that is nearly 11 minutes long. Songs used to be a lot longer, though. So what's important about 11 minutes, right? A new study finds that if you spend that time, that same amount of time, doing moderate exercise, that you're going to live longer. A lot longer than 11 more minutes. Our chief medical correspondent, Dr. Sanjay Gupta, joins us now. So, Sanjay, just so we went to the break. It was like four minutes ago. This will be like four, five minutes Mm -hmm. or whatever. So in the time that we went to the break and did the segment, people would have, you would have been done. And you would have had some really, it would have been beneficial to your health. Tell us about it.
19: Yeah, this this is really interesting. Uh, oftentimes, when we look at these exercise studies, they're they're sort of presented in binary terms, meaning if you do this amount of exercise, that's the sweet spot. That's what you need to do to get the, the health benefits. What this study really tried to do was say, hey, look, let's not think about this in such strict terms and figure out how much benefit you get from uh, lower amounts of exercise or shorter amounts of exercise and movement. So I thought that was pretty interesting. and I, And I'll show you these results, but I'll preface by saying a big meta-analysis. Some 30 million people were sort of uh, analyzed over 10 years, and they were looking at moderate forms of exercise, like the kind you see on the screen there, uh, walking fast, water aerobics, doubles tennis, pushing a lawnmower. Think of it as a type of exercise that gets you breathless enough where you can still talk, but you can no longer sing, for example. Uh, that, that's the way they sort of they put it uh, to how they analyze these types of movements. Here's what they found. They broke this down again, 150 minutes a week is what the recommendations are. That's what you're gonna hear from just about every major medical organization. They said, well, what about half of that, 75 minutes a week? And on the other side, double that, 300 minutes. And for all-cause mortality, you can see the numbers there. There's a 31% reduction with the sweet spot, 150 minutes. But you still got 23% reduction with half that time. By the way, as you look at these numbers, keep in mind, what medication can do that, can give you that sort of benefit? So mortality is one thing. Heart disease, cardiovascular disease is another thing. And again, we looked at sort of comparing those those numbers. And you do find, again, that 150 minutes gives you 27% significant, but... 75 minutes 17 percent and the final thing was cancer uh, and and they looked again at the benefits comparing these different lengths of time and and look it, it's not as good when you're when you have less movement that is clear but there is still significant benefit and I think that's what these researchers wanted to get across
0: is there a is there a sort of a breaking point uh, Sanjay, where it's just not worth it if you go over 300 minutes
1: yeah I like that part
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's
19: it, <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting because there, there is a point where I would say it's a law of diminishing returns. It's, it's not necessarily a break point where you're going to start to veer the curve in the other direction. But I think we, we put this together for you, anticipating this question. But if you see, if you look at this curve, what this curve basically means is risk is your y-axis. And you can see risk goes down pretty significantly right away as you start to move. Um, but overall, as you start to move more and more, that's going to the right on the screen, your risk of of all these different types of health maladies, uh, it may drop a little bit, but not as much. What is that sweet spot? That's about 300 minutes a week. So, you know, roughly, roughly five hours a week of exercise, of movement of the way that we described it. You're not going to get much benefit in terms of these health things. It doesn't mean it's going to hurt you but not necessarily more benefit in terms of reducing those particular risk factors.
3: And Sanjay, there are a lot of people who work out for physical benefits, but a lot of other people do it for for the mental benefit, for what it does for their brain. So what did this study see about, you know, the real changes that you can see from doing that?
19: You know, Caitlin, as a brain guy, I love this question, and I find the answer a bit counterintuitive. So this will surprise people. Look, any kind of movement, uh, intense, brisk, whatever movement, is is obviously good for your body. Um, and it also helps produce something that is known as BDNF, which is this neurotrophic factor which can help your, your neurons grow and, and all these different things. What they find, interestingly, though, is with intense activity, you also make a lot of cortisol, a stress hormone. So that can inhibit that, that miracle growth for the brain. So both types of activity, good for the body, but intense activity, probably better for the heart, whereas moderate activity, where you're not releasing as much cortisol, better for the brain.
0: Huh.
3: Good to know. Sanjay, as always, we love <laughs> yes. having you on. Thank you the for The brain that. guy. Yes. <laughs> the brain guy. Absolutely. The brain who guy. do you trust better? <gasps> also a reminder for everyone else who wants to hear more of Sanjay, season six of his podcast, Chasing Life, is out now. And CNN This Morning continues right now. All right, good morning everyone. We are following breaking news this hour out of Greece. A train full of passengers colliding head on with a freight train. So far at least 36 people have been confirmed dead. We are hearing harrowing stories from survivors who say that the train cars quickly filled with smoke and with flames.
1: And they're worried that the death toll could go up with that. Plus one of America's most prominent mayors has lost re-election. Lori Lightfoot failed to make the cut for Chicago's runoff. How big a role Did rising crime play in her defeat?
0: And first on CNN this morning, a major announcement about the price of insulin that impacts millions of Americans with diabetes. That is just moments away. But we're going to
3: begin with that devastating train crash that we were just talking about in Greece. It has killed more than 36 people and injured dozens of others. You can see the images here of the aftermath. It's a passenger train. It was carrying about 350 people. At least it collided head on with a freight train. Multiple cars derailed and several caught fire just north of Athens where this happened. It left carriages and heaps of debris in its wake. According to state broadcasters there, both trains were traveling on the same track for several miles before the collision actually happened. First responders have been racing to find survivors in the twisted, melted wreckage that you see here. Eleni Jokas is covering this tra- tra- tragedy for us. Elena, I know that the uh, prime minister was there on the ground. What are you more are you learning about the recovery efforts that are underway,
4: though? Yeah, and the recovery efforts are still underway, and you have a, about 150 firefighters and first responders on the ground just outside of Larissa, where the two trains collided. Um, you mentioned the fire. Those two main carriages at the front caught a light. The fire department just came out with a statement that the fire was so intense and reached such high temperatures that it inhibited the initial um, response uh, teams. Um, 36 people have lost their lives. DNA testing is now required to try and identify the victims. There are people gathered outside the hospital uh, in Larissa waiting for news of their loved ones. We also understand about 200 people were taken to safety, 72 people are injured, seven of whom are in critical um, condition. Now the question becomes, why were two trains traveling on the same track when there are two tracks available? Um, And that now has become the big issue. How did this happen? Was it human error? Was it a technical? fault. The prime minister going on the ground saying that he will spare no effort in figuring out what happened uh, and what went on. But then importantly, on the flip side of this, many um, experts are appearing on state TV saying that they're concerned about the overall process, the modernization of the railway systems. Um, 350 people, uh, Caitlin, uh, were on that passenger train and we're waiting for more news. I mean, rescue efforts are, are still currently on the go. Three days of national mourning. Also announced.
3: Yeah, there are going to be major questions about the decisions that were made here. Elaine. thank you so much for that update.
15: Yeah.
1: Now to Chicago, where the mayor there losing re election in a race that was dominated by the issue of rising crime. Lori Lightfoot failed to make the cutoff for the runoff. A Democrat who was endorsed by Chicago's police union received nearly double her votes.
5: I'm grateful that we work together to r- remove a record number of guns off our streets reduced homicides, and started making real progress on public safety.
1: So under Mayor Lori Lightfoot's watch, violent crime spiked in Chicago. It made national headlines and became a talking point for Republicans and the former president. Shootings and murders dropped last year, but other crimes, including carjackings and robberies, are up. That's according to police. (laughs) So the candidate who won the most votes had a tough on crime message and made it a focus of his campaign. Omar Jimenez, live for us right now in Chicago, the Windy City. Call the Windy City not because of the wind, but because of the hot air and its politics, and now that is coming to the fore. Good morning to you, Omar.
6: Good morning, Don. Yeah, politics here in Chicago is a unique scene when it comes to major cities. And when you look at what happened here, I mean, violent crime has been an issue, obviously, for a long time in the city. But I, I spoke to Mayor Lori Lightfoot midway through her administration, and she told me point blank, if people don't feel safe, literally nothing else matters. And this appears to be at least in part a referendum on that. She was the city's first female black mayor. She was the first openly gay mayor here in Chicago and now is set to be the first full term incumbent mayor in 40 years to lose re-election here in Chicago. This comes on the other side of what she described as a once in a lifetime set of challenges from the peak of the pandemic spikes in gun violence, not just here, but in places across the country as well, civil unrest and more.
1: Yeah. First time in 40 years. The last one was uh, Jane Byrne. She didn't win because she didn't plow the streets during a snowstorm. So, again, uh, there's always politics in Chicago. Listen, let's talk about the two men who are going to be facing each other in April. You have Brandon Johnson now and then you have Paul Vallis. Uh, one is a progressive has a progressive teachers union support. The other one has of police tough, really tough on crime stance. What do we know
6: about them? Yeah, so this is essentially turning into a battle between the police union and the teachers' union. Paul Valls, former head of schools here in Chicago and Philadelphia, he ran largely a campaign on public safety. Uh, Brandon Johnson, the Cook County commissioner and former teacher, has the support of the teachers' union. Uh, take a listen to them both as they celebrated their projected victories.
7: We will make Chicago the safest city
20: in America. Months ago, they said they didn't
8: know who I was. Well, if you didn't know, now you know.
6: And Johnson, obviously very excited and went on to talk about how he wants to end the tale of two cities here in Chicago, where one side of the city sees investment and the other doesn't. Both of them headed to an April 4th.
1: It's going to be interesting to watch. Omar Jimenez live for us in Chicago. Thank you and stay warm.
0: This morning, the devastating winter storm that dumped several feet of snow on some parts of Southern California is now moving east. This as San Bernardino County, declares a state of emergency after residents in mountain communities were left stranded. Our Stephanie Elam is live in San Bernardino with more. Such a shock to so many people
24: there.
15: Definitely, Pop. It's been a long time since I've seen anything like this here in the San Bernardino Mountains. We know that they already got seven to eight feet of snow in that last system that just came through over the weekend. And right now you can see it's torrentially raining where I am. And now another three feet is expected before this system moves out. Heavy snow near Los Angeles in the San Bernardino Mountains, potentially life-threatening blizzard warnings. This is by far the most I've ever seen while being here. Across California, more powerful winter storms are slamming the West Coast and heading into the Southwest. More than 30 million people across the country are under winter weather alerts today, most in the Western US. In the San Bernardino Mountains, some residents snowed in with seven to eight feet of accumulation are unable to dig out of their homes. Some say they are running out of food, gas, and supplies. In this part of Southern California, Three times the annual amount of snow that they get here fell in just three days. So you see this red flag here? It's actually because the owners want to make sure that the snow plow is actually a car. Lake Arrowhead, just east of L.A., an area that usually gets five inches of snow in February, was buried under 68 inches in just a matter of days
19: it just started coming down
15: with high winds. There's cars going up and they're slipping and sliding. And several more feet of snow are on the way. In Northern California, snow in the Sierra Nevadas is falling at a rate of two inches per hour. And wind gusts could reach up to 60 miles per hour. The snowstorms, rock slides, and blizzard conditions are making travel extremely hazardous. The National Weather Service issuing a travel warning this week saying first responders may not be able to rescue you.
10: To stay home. Don't come up here, please.
15: One father with two young girls trying to travel home says he was stranded on a Sierra Mountain road for 13 hours before being rescued by snowplows.
8: Those was a crazy storm.
15: Elsewhere in Southern California... <laughs> A happy homecoming for more than 600 students returning home this week after being snowed in at their camp in the San Bernardino Mountains. Obviously, a lot of precipitation here in Southern California. These mountains now, the snowpack standing at more than 220% of their annual uh, record. So that just shows you how much snow, how much rain we have gotten this season. Such a difference from last year when
0: First three months of the year with the driest on record in California, Poppy. Just one extreme to the next and both uh, very dangerous. Stephanie, thank you to your team being out there in the middle of all of it.
3: All right, we have new CNN reporting this morning on how allies of former President Trump are privately working to get some of the further right House Republicans to put their support behind his campaign to be the next Republican nominee, hoping to put some momentum behind that race that he announced last fall. But they seem to have their work cut out for them. Listen to what some of those Republicans that are privately being lobbied told CNN yesterday.
13: I'm looking for someone that can attract more voters, grow our tent, and, and a little less divisive message, I think is important.
24: We've got to have someone that can appeal to independent voters, mm-hmm. not just Republicans,
5: not just Democrats.
22: A lot of times our leaders, maybe their morals aren't where we need to be, but the leadership skills and putting people in place are. So that's kind of what everybody's concerned about.
3: Melanie Zenona is one of the reporters on this story. She joins us live from Capitol Hill. Mel, i listened to some of these lawmakers. Some of them were Trump's biggest allies when he was last in office. What is your sense of why they aren't ready to support him yet? Why are these lobbying efforts so far not being successful?
21: Yeah, it is really interesting because this is Trump's base of support on Capitol Hill. These MAGA members, these members of the Freedom Caucus. And Mano and I interviewed around roughly two dozen of them, and most of them... We're really reluctant to commit to Donald Trump for president right now. Some of them said they want to wait to see how the field develops. Some of them admitted there's concern over Donald Trump's electability. Some of them said they just want to see a fresh face. And others were openly gushing about some of Donald Trump's potential rivals. Congressman Ralph Norman, he has already officially endorsed Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor and Congressman Chip Roy, a conservative, said he was very impressed by Governor Ron DeSantis, who was a founding member of the Freedom Caucus here on Capitol Hill and actually met with members of the group in Florida earlier this month. So clearly Trump is going to have his work cut out for him in winning back his coalition. Uh, But endorsements are something on his mind. I'm told that people are lobbying these House Republicans to back him. He is paying very close attention to who is and is not endorsing him, Caitlin.
3: Oh, he always is. That is guaranteed. Melanie Zanona, great reporting, thank you.
1: A CNN This Morning broadcast exclusive on the price of insulin. The CEO of pharmaceutical giant, Eli Lilly, joins me next with an announcement that could impact tens of millions of Americans, including many of whom who had to ration their own medicine. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Very important here. So please pay attention because millions of Americans are affected by this major news this morning for millions of people suffering from diabetes and high prescription drug costs. The pharmaceutical company, Eli Lilly, cutting the price of insulin so that none of their customers will have to pay more than thirty five dollars a month for the drug. No more than $35 a month for the drug. Let's talk about why this is such a big deal, okay? According to the CDC, in the U.S. alone, more than 37 million people now have diabetes, and another 96 million Americans are pre-diabetic. You talk about why that happens. Millions of Americans rely on insulin to survive, and that costs money. So here in the U.S., the average price for a vial of the drug costs about $100, Um, that's magnitudes more expensive than other countries around the world for a drug that does not cost much to make. And that high price tag has forced more than a million Americans to ration the life-saving medication. So let's discuss this now. Joining me is the CEO and the chair of Eli Lilly and company, Dave Ricks. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining us this morning. This is really important news. It is, and thank you for having me on. You know, today we're announcing
17: a 70% price cut uh, on our most commonly used insulins, which will phase in over this year, and effective today, a $35 cap, as you said, on out-of-pocket costs Why at the pharmacy counter. Yeah, so this is a culmination of about seven years of work we've been doing to reduce uh, the price of our insulins. Uh, launching our own a generic to our own uh, best-selling brand. But with the change last year in the Medicare Part D benefit, the senior benefit, to $35, we think that should be the new standard in America. And so while we uh, could wait for Congress to act or the healthcare system in general uh, to apply that standard, we're just applying it ourselves. Lilly's going to buy down all of our customers' out-of-pocket costs to $35 at the pharmacy counter automatically.
1: Okay, let's talk a little bit more. Then you said buy down $35 cost at the counter automatically. So tell us more about how this is going to work. How does the insurance coverage factor in, and could it drop the price even more? Well, the average price people pay for our
17: insulins in our studies is about $21. So if that was your price before, there won't be an effect. But we've heard about and you're reporting about people who unfortunately uh, can't afford their insulin or they're forced to ration it because of the price point. That's because of the growth in what we call high deductible plans or plans that people have to uh, contribute out of pocket early in the year to the full cost of their medical care, including insulin. So in the case of Lilly Insulin now, that, they won't be subjected to those high deductible costs. They'll just
1: pay $35 or about $1.20 a
17: day when they go to the pharmacy counter, no matter how much Lilly Insulin
1: they use. Okay. good. I'm glad you mentioned how much lily insulin they use, because I'm wondering how it's going to how many people it's really going to affect, because seven in 10 insulin users don't use your company's medicine. So what do you say to other manufacturers about their prices? Because in order to bring it down for the majority of Americans to really make a dent, it's going to have to be more than just lily. I'm glad you raised that point, Don, because it's, you know we have a big,
17: complicated system. The other manufacturers will have to make their own decisions, of course. But we're calling today on our partners in the insurance industry, government policymakers, employers who set the policy for their own insurance to match this, this, um, this new effort to reduce the cost to no more than $35 a month for insulin for all Americans. We're doing that for our products. That's what we can affect. So we call on everyone uh, to meet us at this point and take this issue away from, you know, a disease that's stressful and difficult to manage already, uh, take away the affordability challenges.
1: Okay, so why, listen, one of the the key groups likely to ration insulin, I have to be honest with you, Um, African Americans, one of the key groups to to ration uh, uh, insulin, black Americans. How do you make sure that black people with diabetes know that they will not have to pay as much for insulin? Can you promise that this price drop is going to be equitable?
17: That's such an important issue. So two things we're doing. First, um, this uh, price drop, this $35 cap, will be automatically applied at about 85% of U.S. pharmacies. Why not the rest? Because they don't subscribe to the electronic system that allows us to intervene at at the pharmacy counter, even if the patient doesn't ask. For 85%, it'll happen automatically. What about the other 15%? They'll need to go to lily.com, our website, and they can download a barcode and use a a quick uh, coupon themselves. But to get the word out, and, and thank you CNN for putting us on air today, to get the word out, We need to make sure that for those where it's not automatically applied, people can find out about that. Mm -hmm. We're going to launch a big media campaign later this spring, a bus tour, other things to get into those communities and make sure people know about the savings that are available to them.
1: There was just a picture up on the screen. I need to explain to people what that was. That was my dad who died uh, in the late 70s due Mm -hmm. to complications from diabetes, and it happens to so many families, especially African-American uh, families, And I understand it is personal. So it's personal to a lot of people who are watching here. And then we talked about the effects on African-Americans, but it's also personal to you. It is. Yeah. Thank you for
17: I'm sorry to hear about your father. But it, diabetes is a common condition. It touches millions of, of Americans, as you mentioned, and, of course, even more families. Um, so that's why this issue, I think, has been such a hot topic and why the uh, kind of become a, 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 a Insulin has become such a a pivotal issue in terms of drug affordability. Um, So we're proud today to to lead again in reducing the price uh, to consumers. And hopefully uh, the rest of the system can match uh,
1: us uh, and really take this issue and put it behind us. Listen, a lot of people uh, wish that this would have happened a lot sooner, but we are where we are. And so uh, we'll go from there. And we thank you for joining us, the CEO and the chair Mm -hmm. of Eli Lilly and Company, Dave Ricks. Thank you, sir. Appreciate you coming on CNN.
17: Thanks, Don. Thanks for having me on today. We
0: have new details this morning about the lawsuit against Fox News, how members of the Fox Corporation and their board could even face more legal exposure if they fail to act. So, we're going to speak to an attorney who says his former client suffered from what he
3: called Foxitis and Foxmania, and said the lies that his client, his former client, heard on the network partly inspired him to storm the Capitol.
0: Welcome back. There are new questions this morning after just stunning revelations from the $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News. The network's chairman, Rupert Murdoch, knew the outlet was spreading lies about the 2020 presidential election. Legal experts are calling on Fox News to take immediate action like removing high-ranking personnel and settling its case with Dominion, or else the legal exposure could increase. Oliver Darcy is here with a lot more. This is interesting. You wrote about it in your newsletter last night. Um, Paul Ryan's on the board, right? And some other big name individuals. The question is, is there culpability of the board? And if there is and there was no action, what is then potential legal liability for these individuals?
25: I think we have to remember that Fox Corporation is a publicly traded company. Mm -hmm. And so they have a board of directors, who owe responsibility to the shareholders to make sure that, you know, there's there's some sort of corporate governance. And I think what you're seeing in these documents that are coming out of Dominion is there's no semblance of normal corporate governance at at Fox Corporation, where you have people like the CEO of Fox News uh, seemingly engaged in in massive wrongdoing. And so when I was talking to Jeffrey Sonnenfeld, who is the um, renowned professor at Yale Management School, he was saying that the board of Fox, people like Paul Ryan, need to take immediate action, including possibly removing people like uh, the Fox News CEO, Suzanne Scott, um, to at least attempt to clean up this wrongdoing because they have a responsibility to shareholders. And by their lack of corporate governance, they have effectively opened up Fox News and Fox Corporation to... huge to financial hit. Huge legal exposure. And so at, they have to do something. And, and I was talking to him and it said, Paul Ryan, you know, he privately warned the Murdochs, and he said that's not enough. He needs to take more action. He has a responsibility to the shareholders, not the Murdochs. So we'll see what happens, but there is, you know, some history here. Um, Murdoch's News of the World scandal, there were some high-profile resignations right. there, okay. including James Murdoch, Murdoch's son. So mm-hmm. this, this story is only getting started, mm-hmm. I think.
1: Can you imagine if this actually goes to trial and
25: those people have to get on the stand for some of Fox's high-profile personalities? It will be devastating for Fox. I mean, this is a taste of what's to come. Imagine Rupert Murdoch on the stand, Lachlan Murdoch on the stand, Sean Hannity on the stand, Tucker Carlson on the stand. This will be weeks and weeks of damning headlines, which could really damage Fox's brand. I mean, they have, you know, they, to preserve these business relationships, they have to at least um, have a, some reputation that they're a legitimate news company. And I've been saying, obviously, that that's not the case. But the perception that they are a news company is crumbling. And this could result in damage to the actual Fox Corporation brand and really result in problems for shareholders. Their shareholders are going to wonder what's going on over at Fox.
1: And Dominion has that leverage and they know it because they, they know you don't want to see your folks on the stand. So do something, I'm sure. No. Yeah. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Oliver. Fascinating. All right. As
3: we are learning more about the lawsuit, it's also raising more questions about the real life impact that it has, that it has on Fox's viewers, on their audience. An attorney who actually once represented a January 6th defendant at the time blamed the network's coverage for his client's actions that day, saying essentially that he developed what the attorney called Foxitis and believed lies that were told on the network and by former President Trump about the election. The rioter was known as Anthony Antonio. He lost his job at the beginning of the pandemic, and for the next six months, he says he watched Fox News constantly with his roommates.
12: Election night happened, and everything was going on. I, I truly believed that that Trump won the election, but I felt like, you know, um, you know, maybe I believed that America was being robbed of of a president, and I now know that that was a lie.
3: Anthony Antonio's former lawyer, Joseph Hurley, joins us now. Joseph, thank you so much for being here. You talked to your former client about this lawsuit, about what we were just hearing from Oliver and these revelations. What is he, what's he making of it?
22: Uh, Good morning. Uh, I I indicated that I would do this, but I asked that you find somebody who's not smarter than me. Uh, who would be the co-interviewee, and I already see you couldn't find anybody. And they said, if we can find one, we'll bring them. So they don't exist. Uh, <laughs> let me tell you why I'm here. I am here because I saw in real time, what those, I, I, the words I would use, I shouldn't use, so I won't, uh, people at Fox, the uh, Tucker Carlson with a look on his face and Hannity with his smug look and that group of people, they don't know what they do to people, and, and it's unimaginable that they can change the course of who a human being is because of naivete. And the person that I represented was a religious, non-political individual who devoted his part of his time to working in children's groups at church going to the South America three different times for weeks at a time to work in an orphanage, a good guy, no criminality, no bad traits that would hurt society. And he ended up in his job location out in Illinois and they couldn't leave the uh, house that he lived in with three other people for seven months before the election. And those people watched Fox 24-7, 7-24, and it started to seep in, and this, these are my words, seep into his brain and things that he had never thought of before he started to accept and he ended up when trump said come to washington it'll be wild of him feeling a devotion to his country the united states of america not trump per se and he ended up in washington and he ended up with uh, eleven or twelve charges and he has been facing ignominity and it's all because of the tuckers and the shans and the other People that are there that don't give a damn about anybody but themselves and money. And it's disgusting.
3: I want to get to the money part because that is something even Rupert Murdoch acknowledged in his deposition. Some people would say, you know, your client was responsible for his own actions that day. But have you talked to him about what he thinks of this lawsuit, what he thinks of what these hosts were actually saying and texting to one another versus what he was listening to and watching on air?
22: I had talked to him when he first came in the door. I, I wasn't going to represent any of those people down there. They, they, uh, if anybody doesn't deserve representation, you try to take down this country and democracy, you don't deserve it. Go to prison, goodbye, spend a nice life. He came in, and I didn't know that he was uh, had this particular problem. And uh, I met with him. He sat down. And I began talking to him, and I was like, oh, what are you doing here? had nothing to do with what I perceived perceived as the individual who would be there and i found out what i've just told you in more detail of course and at that point uh i realized that he realized that he had been made a fool of and he felt victimized by fox and that was an immediate reaction and uh where he worked he wanted to come on television i think he was on with me or i was on with him i should say two or three times on cnn and uh he was told to work if you say anything he's from south carolina if you say anything about trump bad you're fired so he became very reluctant to say anything but he had an abiding disgust for fox and what they had done to him and some of the people that he hooked up with meaning started chatting with and mm-hmm. the dumb stuff they do to a while away their time he realized they were the result of that as well so there's a army of people out there who are naive or stupid or whatever you want to call it or looking for power and they just listen to Fox and whatever Fox tells them, that's what they'll do. I don't think that have this you, uh, the money amount is going to make any different.
3: Joe, have you spoken to him, to your client lately about this? Is he still watching Fox? What does he make of this, though? Like the new revelations?
22: He, he, he does not speak with Fox at all. He doesn't like to talk about Fox because he considers it the ruination of his life, that he was foolish enough to believe in them. And he, he's not the kind of person that would, I feel this, he's a private individual, complacent individual, notwithstanding that day, and uh, he doesn't want to talk about it. It's a horrible edition of his life and still going on. His trial scheduled for August 7th.
3: Yeah, we'll be paying close attention to it. Joe Hurley, thanks for joining us.
1: Well, coming up… You're very welcome. Coming up, a CNN… a fascinating um, interview, fascinating, especially the defense that he used with that uh, fox-itis. Chris Amanpour is coming up, she's going to show you, she's going to do what she does best. Watch this.
26: We have seen some of CNN's reports that are targeted and false.
16: That's not true. We, we, we report the facts and we report the truth, and that's why you're sitting here with me, Mr. Foreign Minister.
26: Christian
1: Amanpour confronting the foreign minister of Iran with CNN's own reporting. She's here with that interview. You don't want to miss it. Next.
0: Just wait until you see this. It is a CNN exclusive. Our chief international anchor, Christian Amanpour, confronts Iran's foreign minister and presses him with the facts of CNN's reporting on the sexual abuse of protesters in the custody of Iran's Revolutionary Guard. So let's go to Christiane. She is live in London this morning with more. Christiane, this is a remarkable interview. Everyone can see it online a little bit later today, but preview it for us. What is most striking?
16: Well, I obviously had to start with the global condemnation of Iran over the crackdown uh, after Massa Amini's death against the women's rights protests. He did de- de- absolutely denied that there'd been any crackdown of, quote, peaceful protesters. He essentially said that the crackdown came when the protests were infiltrated by those sponsored by outside, in his words, who wanted to create a counter-revolution. But I brought up specific CNN reporting, New York Times reporting, human rights reporting on the allegations of multiple sexual abuses committed in detention against females who had been arrested. Here was his here's the the the, the back and forth when you say the Islamic Republic of Iran respects human rights one female protester Says that she was detained inside a Revolutionary Guard facility for more than a month and raped by three different men. She went to a cleric, a mullah, afterwards because she was having suicide thoughts. She was so upset. CNN spoke with that cleric. Is that acceptable? Is it acceptable for a woman, whatever she's done, to be arrested and raped? And there are many, many, many reports of sexual abuse in this situation against women and men.
26: Firstly, in the peaceful demonstrations in the fall, no one was arrested.
16: So you're just denying that?
26: However, In those protests that had become violent, some individuals, some of whom had entered Iran from the outside and were using firearms and killing the police, were arrested. You do know that the Supreme Leader actually issued an amnesty, and all those who were imprisoned were released, with the exception of those who had killed someone or were being sued. Regarding the Iranian woman that you mentioned, I cannot confirm it. There have been so many such baseless claims made on social media and in media.
16: OK, these, these are not baseless and they weren't on the Internet. It's CNN spoke to a cleric, a religious person inside your country and got this
26: story. We have seen some of CNN's reports that are targeted and false.
16: That's not true. We, we, we report the facts and we report the truth. And that's why you're sitting here with me, Mr. Foreign Minister. And it carries on as I press him on more of those allegations and what we've seen uh, of abuses of of human rights against the women and protesters. But I also, of course, asked him about helping Russia, the allegations that they're helping Russia uh, target Ukrainians during this war, and, of course, about the Iranian nuclear deal. And the U.S. is now saying that Iran may be some 12 days away from so-called breakout if it wants to create enough enriched fissile material for a nuclear weapon. Iran says it wants to go back into the JCPOA and is calling on the United States to do so.
0: Christian, we cannot wait to see the full interview. Again, we'll have that online at CNN.com. It'll also air on your PBS show later today. Remarkable. Thank you very much.
16: Thank you, Poppy. Caitlin.
3: Can't wait to see more of that. Also, it's a busy morning on Capitol Hill. The Attorney General, Merrick Garland, is going to face senators this morning as he navigates multiple special counsel probes inside the Justice Department. New pressure from Republicans. We'll tell you what to expect and what to listen to from the Attorney General.
20: Some political news today Florida Governor Ron DeSantis released his autobiography, The Courage to Be Free. The book is already a number one bestseller, especially in Florida, where it's literally the only book on the shelf.
0: (laughs) Late night, having a field day uh, with this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis doing all things that any potential White House contender would do, including writing and promoting a new book. Is that a prerequisite for the presidency? With us now, our senior data reporter Harry Anton. It's doing it like hit number one right away. It, it, It is
27: doing incredibly well so far. And, you know, if we look at this morning's number, that is going to be the focus. It's Ron DeSantis' book. Look at this. Ron DeSantis' The Courage to Be Free is number one on the Amazon bestsellers. I was checking the New York Times. I don't think it's there yet. But on Amazon, it is number one. But the thing that got me so interested was, okay, Ron DeSantis has written a book. Have the other 2024 contenders written a book? And if essentially we look at, look here. Polled for the 2024 GOP press primary and wrote a book. Anyone at least 1% in the latest Fox survey. Look at all these candidates. Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, Mike Pence, Greg Abbott, Liz Cheney, Christy Noem, Mike Pompeo, Tim Scott, and of course, Ron DeSantis. Pretty much all of them, all of them have written a book. The only one who is polling at 1% that I don't believe has... Is Glenn Youngkin? So in this particular year, at least the Republicans who we think are potential nominees for 2024 and probably are going to run or have already declared, they have in fact written a book. So they at least think so, guys.
3: Yeah, because it gives you the visibility without having to actually get into the race, and so Mm -hmm. it seems like a no-brainer.
27: It it, it seems like a no-brainer to me. You know, it's something you put out there, and it's sort of this signal flag, right? We're always looking. Okay, is this person going to run? Are they not going to run? Writing a book to me is an indication that they, in fact, are going to run. But the thing that got me interested in this as well is, okay, in the past, have presidents actually written books? And what we see here is, take a look here. Okay, presidents who wrote books before winning since 1976. Look at all of these candidates. Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, who actually had two New York Times bestsellers, Joe Biden, the only one on the list, who's not on the list, excuse me, was Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, of course, wrote a bestseller after he left the presidency, but not beforehand. Here's the question though. Do you in fact need to have a bestseller to actually win? Okay, so presidents with New York Times bestsellers before winning since 1976, among those who wrote a book pre-election, did they in fact have a bestseller? Look at the yes column. Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Joe Biden, But in the no, look how many no's there are. Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush. So it doesn't necessarily seem to me that actually having a book that sells is a prerequisite for winning, it's in fact writing the book itself. In fact, Jimmy Carter, I was interested to note, actually wrote a book that basically was just in southern bookstores, religious southern bookstores. He wasn't interested in writing a book to actually go to the New York Times bestseller. He was just interested in writing a book. And so, look. When I look at all this data, I'm not saying to myself, "Okay, you know what? I'm not going to look towards the New York Times bestseller to understand if someone's going to win. I'm actually going to look towards the oh, I'm going to look towards the polls. And what do we see? We see here, well, this is a little surprise for my dear friend Donnie over here. Oh, this no. is a special it's, bonus number. It's the 60th day of the year, <laughs> and you know what that is? That is Don Lemon's birthday, baby. Oh, we got geezer. you, Donnie.
1: You know what I was, thank you, thank you. By the way, I hate surprises. But anyways, uh, I yeah. was <laughs> looking at the slide that you had. Uh, I think it was like presidents who wrote books. Yeah. I was just like, I voted in every one of those elections except for Carter. <laughs> Carter and the first Ronald Reagan, so I was thinking, man.
27: You know what? It's been. You grow more beautiful with age, <laughs> Don. That's what I have to say. Oh, well, Amen. thank you very much. I thank you. It. You
0: even surprised us with that. We didn't know who. was doing that. No We idea. know you hate surprises. So. Yeah.
27: I hope that was a nice surprise. You're aware.
0: <laughs> do you not think I would have had like a cake with candles out here? <laughs> I'm aware.
1: On the night show, they surprised me once. And they rolled the breaking news thing. And I'm like, what is going on? What's happening? What is the breaking news? And they're like, it's your birthday. I'm like, I hate surprises. Don't do this. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. you Harry. All, Thanks, Harry. Appreciate it. Happy birthday. Thank you. Have a great day, everyone. CNN <laughs> Newsroom starts right now.
0: That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening.
13: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.